Today, we travel beyond the wind door. Kevin, I think it's time we talked about Doctor Who. Yeah. We've done the 50s, we've done the 90s, and now we get to get into 2007? 2005, the mid-aughts. Yeah. So Uh, let's do the time warp again. All right. um, Insert TARDIS dematerialization noise here. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, yeah, no, don't worry about it. I'll I'll get the editing taken care of. I know, I know. I'm just saying that to be glib. But even though we have our doctor expert on, Toby, you're the one that picked this out. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick this uh, to round out our trilogy here? So uh, when we were coming up with the theme, which I'll be completely honest, we're two thirds of the way through this show. I'm still not entirely sure what the theme is, but um, <laughs> spooky. <laughs> it, it's spooky, which is spooky sort of I interpreted as exactly. I interpreted it as stuff that really scared us as kids, but if you introduced it to an adult now, they might find it a little bit tame, perhaps, mm. but still that see would... that like there's some conceptually freaky stuff going on. Mm-hmm. I thought on this, and I couldn't really find something that really fit the category, at least not in the way that I wanted it to. I could certainly think of a lot of moments that did really unsettled me when I was a kid. But there were more disarming moments in films that were otherwise pretty straightforward. You know, the tunnel scene in Willy Wonka where Gene Wilder is just screaming at you as a chicken's head gets cut off and like things like uh, the freaking clown and the bravest little toaster. It's just like, what? God, that moment. Why did we have that? Who who keeps putting these moments in these yeah. films? Why is Judge Doom this intense at the end of Roger Rabbit? <laughs> Why do we even have that lever? Just it's... a little bit of nightmare fuel makes the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yep. and Stephen uh, Moffat knows this all too well. Yeah. And so <laughs> he was but... a school teacher after all. Is that right? I never knew yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I did some research on him a while back when I was just to learn about him because I was fascinated by just how his brain works. And apparently he was a school teacher before he became a renowned sitcom writer and hmm. when he became before he got the call yeah. to the TARDIS. What, what but, sitcom did he write on? Uh, he oh. wrote several. He wrote a series called Press Gang, which I haven't I heard of in passing from a, another British friend of mine, which is apparently pretty good. He also created a sitcom that was kind of semi-autobiographical called Coupling. Yes, that was and my he first actually, experience. And also, that second one actually received an American remake, which let's just say he was not very charitable towards. Wow, okay. <laughs> of course. So, I think my first experience with Moffat was specifically Jekyll. And yes, then I, I went on that on DVD. So. I went on to watch Coupling as a result of that. I didn't get into Doctor Who until sometime after that i want to say like a matter of months or years or something an ex of mine actually has a similar experience to you except his her first experience with moffat's writing was sherlock because she was a Mm. big sherlock holmes fanatic Mm. and she went back and watched doctor who and became familiar with his who work and yeah so so all of this to go back to your question greg of what led me to this is that the moments that i could think of were just that moments rather Mm -hmm. than entire films and i wanted something that did encapsulate that but then it hit me that the doctor who revival series was full of moments that stuck with me and i wasn't very young you know the first one started in 2005 and i was like 11 at the times well i feel old now i was 
young enough that it still got under my skin. And this one being one of the earliest, it was the first season when Christopher Eccleston was still the Doctor, and that did stay with me. And by this point, I think most people listening to this will be familiar with the episode Blink, whether mm-hmm. you've watched it yourselves, you know it by reputation due to the Weeping Angels being very iconic, or you've listened to the, I think, after-school episode that uh, Alex and Sharon recorded on it. And that is a fantastic episode. It's a really excellent piece of horror short story fiction and you know it's a neat introduction to the doctor but uh this one is i think the first episode that moffat was credited as a writer on it was yeah. yes and if, unless you count this one cr- comic relief charity thing he wrote called the curse of fatal death which was meant to be very funny that. <laughs> that one's very funny but it um, is great rowan atkinson playing the doctor oh as well as several other that's people. okay yeah. yeah. And the. Produced by Richard Curtis, who ended up writing an episode for Moffat's first season as showrunner. No, this episode, while I don't think it sort of took off in terms of like the public consciousness as much as the Weeping Angels did, principally because the like the threat was a one time thing, mm. unless like uh, Kevin, you were more up to date on Doctor Who than uh, I am. I at this don't stage, remember but... if they ever brought back like what caused the gas yeah. mask thing and later episodes exactly. i don't remember but it, this is also the introduction to thing. a very beloved character in fan circles captain jack harkness oh my heart i love him so much you've but... got an excellent bottom too <laughs> okay I so love that, thank you kevin <laughs> that establishes him right off from the off just like you know it just it shows that you know he swings both ways and it's treated as totally normal is it treated as totally normal uh, that's all i got <laughs> no that's... well i mean he not only goes for men and women but because of the time period where he lives in he also goes for aliens too so flexible kevin, it's sci-fi People fucking aliens is the expected thing to happen. (laughs) We haven't had a lot of people of color so far, but at the very least, uh, because it's Davies and because it's the introduction. Yeah, Russell T. Davies. And because it's the introduction of uh, John Berriman's character, Captain Jack Harkness, we have at least moved out of the realm of heteronormativity. At the very least, because he's kind of the cause of everything going wrong in this, he's kind of our resident by disaster in this episode. Mm. So this episode, like, I think anecdotally, a lot of the people that I talk to, especially here in the UK, remember The Empty Child. And if you quote, like, are you my mummy? Mm. People will know what you're talking about. And it's because... I have a funny story about that. Oh, yeah? Please share. I have a funny story about that. I have a friend who's a big Doctor Who fan herself. She lives here in the mm-hmm. States. And one time on uh, on her face, one of her Facebook posts, she decided to post a picture of herself wearing a gas mask. And I posted a comment saying, are you my mummy? <laughs> she thought it was funny as hell. Her boyfriend was like, what the fuck did this guy just say to you? This is exactly. not right. And exactly. she had to be like, it's okay, it's okay, it's a joke. <laughs> say- had your hand raised. The plot of this one is that they're chasing down a probe and then like they get to London and it's like, what's going on? What's why is there this creepy child in the gas mask asking for its mommy? And then in the second episode follow up to that, it's like, oh, the creepy gas mask child, they've got space nanobots and a bunch of other people have got space nanobots. And now you have zombies. That's even even worse than regular zombies because they don't even have to bite you or scratch you. They literally just have to touch you and you become one of them. Don't let them touch you. What happens if they touch us? You're looking at it. The moment that I think solidifies the threat of all of this, it's there's a lot of incidents like early on where the child is at the door and that's very creepy and foreboding. But I don't yeah. think it comes then. It's actually when... The doctor enters the hospital and you just see all of the victims in bed, each one with the gas mask. And it's an abandoned hospital. It doesn't even have a skeleton crew. There was just a single man there played by Richard Wilson. And he is so good. He also he plays a regular character in another BBC series, which I think I brought up on here before Merlin, which is a sort Ah. of 
a young adult take on Arthurian mythology where Merlin is the point of view character and is working behind the scenes and it has a lot of, you know, don't let your people discover your magic because magic is outlawed and Gaius, as played by Richard Wilson, is the sagely mentor stroke father figure to Merlin and he's very good. He always commits to it. He is yeah. this font of wisdom it, and comedy because he has a history oh, dude, in there's comedy two as well. great little comedy beats he does pretty well in in this in this two-parter like the first one is like where he's like where where the doctor uh, the ninth doctor eccleston is like you're very sick <clears throat> dying i should think i just haven't been able to find the time <laughs> then there's the other one later on when he's she's talk, he's talking to one of the lady patients who's like dr constantine Mrs. Harcourt, how much better you are looking. My leg's grown back. When I come to the hospital, I had one leg. Well, there is a war on, is it possible you miscounted? <laughs> he is, I love that. That is like he the is best game brilliantly the funny, but me. he establishes the horror of this tremendously well because yeah. he walks you through it and... As the doctor is examining them, he asks him, check another, check another. The fact that all of these victims, it's not just that they have a gas mask, they have the same injuries, the exact same injuries, right down to a scar on one hand. And when the doctor mentions that, you just see uh, Richard Wilson glance at his own hand, which has the same scar. Mm. And he describes it as physical trauma as plague then when he asks the doctor and it's very rare that you get the doctor being like on the back foot that there is someone in the room that is more knowledgeable than him about the situation and conducting it with this somber gravitas and Richard Wilson carries it and he says what is the cause of death and the doctor is literally just guessing at it and at each one he goes no no and the doctor just says like well what then there wasn't one mm -hmm. they're not dead knocks it all sit up and yeah. that's creepy as and hell the music and, just goes and as they sit down his next response is like just the chilling cherry on the cake where he says they just sort of sit there there's no heartbeat no life science of any kind they just don't die. Like, yeah. with this exhaustion, like, this doctor who is simultaneously taken on this duty of being in their care, but there's a note of resentment there that he is tormented by the fact that he has to be there, but they just don't die. Yeah, it's it's chilling. Mm. The spookiest moment by far is when the guy's face starts turning into a gas mask. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, start, it starts out a little weak because you see yeah. like the gas mask come out of his mouth and you're like, that CGI looks a little hinky. It's mid 2000s British TV yeah. doing their yeah. best. But then his eyes turn into the lenses and it's the fucking scariest thing. Yes. <laughs> it's even it's actually even worse on the home media version of this episode, because if you listen carefully, you can hear like slight bone crunching noises as the uh, gas mask envelops his face which they actually had to subdue for the broadcast version mm. and mm. there's a sound of choking because the gas mask is forcing its way through the throat so mm -hmm. yeah. we said that, you know oh these are tame episodes but and i love the explanation of this because that's another reason why i was drawn to this because a lot of the times moffat will write these scenarios that later on he would just come up with such convoluted explanations for things and they would rarely be satisfying or yeah. feel fair like they were earned or justified but in this i actually think they do an excellent job of giving you all of the pieces and then when the explanation is there it feels simultaneously satisfying and horrifying because it is the idea of these intelligent nanobots and the nanomachines uh, that yeah. are unfamiliar with a creature and just like them being able to just say like this is a child that is dead no it's not there's something unsettling about it even though yeah. it's created life and it's the fact that it doesn't know so it just stitches it together and figuring things out as it goes and it just because of that because 
it says that it doesn't know what's gas mask, what skin. It gives you an idea that the condition of Jamie when they found it, Jamie was in a very bad state. Very like, so. not just dead, unidentifiable. And the writing does the absolute most to take the subject matter to its limit. And it's cheesy at moments. It absolutely is because this I is. Mean, I mean, there's some great We're comedy here for in that there. For, that's uh, another one of my favorite comedy moments. That probably is the comedy moment, and it's from Eccleston himself. Where the the first episode ends on this cliffhanger of the gas mask zombies surrounding Jack and and uh, the Doctor <laughs> and Rose and everything, and they're all like, "Mummy, mummy, mummy!" And then when it comes back to it, and the next episode, the Doctor just gets has this stern look on his face, and all of a sudden he goes, "Go to your room." I mean it. I'm really angry with you. I'm really cross. Go to your room. And then they go and lie back down on the bed. And afterwards, they all exhale, including the doctor. And he's like, I'm very glad that worked. Uh, It would have been terrible last words. Smash cut to titles. (laughs) But that also, not only is that a a hilarious way to resolve a, a terrifying issue, it also sets up one of the greatest scares later in that episode. It's got the power of a god, and I just sent it to its room. Doctor? I'm here. Can't you see me? What's that noise? End of the tape. It ran out about 30 seconds ago. I'm here now. Can't you see me? I sent it to its room. This is its room. Now, I I want to hear Alejandra's like uh, contribution to this because I think something you said on the Discord chat, I was like, that's amazing. You just summed up Stephen Moffat. So (laughs) I would love to hear you just expand. Ah, so Stephen Moffat. Oh boy, what a man. What a writer of things. Uh, My experience with Doctor Who is very limited. I had some friends in college who wanted me to get into it. They showed me blank. Blink is a good episode. I'll give it to Blink. Fun. Enjoyed it. Noticing that there's not a lot of doctor in it, though. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's besides, it was kind of, that's, they did, that's they did the Dr. Light episodes for budget reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. besides the point. This episode, I have a lot of thoughts. Some of them are fair. Some of them are not. Like, I don't like Rose. Mm. Um, and this is a me thing. Her vibe is divisive. I won a reality show contest to be on Doctor Who. That's her vibe on the show <laughs> when she's interacting with the Doctor, and I, I don't dig it. She's a little better when she's with Captain Bisexual. <laughs> I think she actually has always has a little more chemistry with Tennant to some extent, too, when, um, in season two. So. so, I mean, and the line that uh, I said that Toby's referring to is that I th- this episode is simultaneously... It's trying to be clever and is actually clever sometimes. Because like, yeah, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it does something unexpected, clever, and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, you know, they introduce the laser gun and it's like, oh, yeah, we can just, you know, knock a hole in the floor with this laser gun. It's great. But then it runs out of juice and it's like, okay, I mean, yeah, sure. Why wouldn't the laser gun run out of juice? That's a really complicated fucking thing it's doing. Mm, (laughs) Like how much battery can you cram in a laser gun? But then there's just, there's other stuff. And I think it's like, y'all were talking about the um, go to your room line. That is a great example of a line where I have the distinct impression someone was trying to be clever. Mm. It makes sense, but it makes sense in a way that you can, I feel the person sitting down at the writer's table and being like, I've come up with such a clever thing to write down without really considering how much it really fucks up the tone of the really dark cliffhanger of the last episode. (laughs) Well, Stephen Moffat loves his mood whiplash a little too much, I will admit. Yeah. um, But I think it it only works as well as it does because Eccleston just sells it. In the second episode, there's a lot more of um, the Doctor and Captain Bisexual sort of like posturing roundabout yeah. competing for rose's affection mm, yeah not in like yeah, a really explicit yeah. way but i wasn't enjoying that yeah. and uh, there's just a oh and one thing i definitely didn't need to be in the episode was the revelation that the young girl who's been taking care of all the street urchins 
is actually the mother of the child, which means she was pregnant at like 15 mm-hmm. in the middle of war-torn London. And I'm like, yeah. mm, I mm, don't like... Sure, the episode doesn't actually go into any details of that. There was a something that was cut from the script but at mm. one point where like this one mysterious guy was meant to show up who was going to help the doctor and stuff. And it, and it turns out it was going to be you know, the father of the, that child. Yeah, definitely and don't include that guy. Greater, and, no. uh, and as if that was bad enough, it was also going to be heavily implied that the guy was German. Oh, so. for fuck's sake. Wow, yeah, yeah so, none of that. Please, thank God none they of cut that. that. Uh, so they that, that made me wildly uncomfortable. And that's right before the movie, uh, the episode pulls out. It's like big, we're going to fix everything Trump card, which, as you said, Toby, is actually pretty earned. The whole like concept of like, oh, the nanobots were just confused as to what a human actually is. And once they figure it out, they stop their fuck up. It's like, you know what? Okay. That there's like a there's like a logic to that. It's a step by step kind of thing. I'm I not mean, that kind of thing it permeates a lot in uh Stephen Moffat's scripts where the with the exception of probably the Weeping Angels, where the creature is not necessarily malicious, it's just a little misunderstood, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'd say the other main thing, and this was a problem in both uh, episodes. Um, I I, th- I find that the second episode is a little weaker than the first one, because the first one does all, like all the tense setup, and then yeah. the payoff I just find a little weak. But the thing that's weak in both is that I don't know why the Doctor seems to be under the impression that England saves the world in World War II. Yeah, um, it's very jingoistic, isn't it? It is it's, a little it's a, jingoistic. I it's a BBC agree. show. It is a BBC, like, yeah, exactly. But that's exactly the thing. It's like the Doctor I mean, granted, it's revealed in, like, a later season with Matt Smith's Doctor that apparently he's fr- been friends with Winston Churchill for, yeah. uh, for, across his various incarnations. It's one so. thing if Rose is rah-rah gung-ho Britain. Because she's from there. Mm. And it's yeah. a BBC show. I expect there to be a certain amount of that, just to the same as way I expect it from, you know, American productions to mm. be American jingoistic. Like, yeah. I don't question it necessarily from, like, why is this here? I know why it's here. But it is just weird when it's the doctor who should not give a shit about what this one island did in one war on Earth. <laughs> well, in fairness, like, this doctor is the one who basically is still kind of dealing with uh, the Time Lord is... equivalent of PTSD from the Time War, so he's kind of a shell-shocked veteran, and he's kind of adopted Earth as his home world, basically, because... Yeah, but that, that doesn't mean he gives a sh- he shouldn't give that much of a shit about Britain's contribution to World War II, okay? And yeah. he definitely shouldn't um, be saying... But he loves like human history. He lo- uh, I mean, all doctor... All, everything every doctor has in common is they love human history. Well, they he should it. know it better, then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the doctor has his biases, so... <laughs> yeah, but be... they should be inhuman biases. They shouldn't be mm. very human biases. I well, think you know, humanity's uh, infectious. What can we yeah. say? Well, I don't want to pile on in any way. As Toby's about to get into... Just because the three of us have some degree of fondness for the Doctor, it doesn't mean Alejandra doesn't have a valid point. I will say that trying to judge these episodes by themselves is difficult, because each new Doctor brings with them their own personality, their own context, and the writers too work within the current cultural context. I've heard at least one occasion where the fourth Doctor praised all of humanity, without any national labels. Homo sapiens. What an inventive, invincible species. It's only a few million years since they crawled up out of the mud and learned to walk. Puny, defenseless bipeds. They've survived flood, famine, and plague. They've survived cosmic wars and holocausts. Now, here they are, out among the stars, waiting to begin a new life, ready to outsit eternity. And a time when the 11th Doctor was utterly disgusted with the choices made by humans. The Earth was burning. Our sun had turned on us and every other nation had fled to the skies. Our children screamed as the skies grew hotter. And then it came like a miracle. The last of the star whales. We trapped it. We built our ship around it. And we rode on his back to safety. 
If you wish our voyage to continue, then you must press the forget button. Be again the heart of this nation, untainted. If not, press the other button. Your reign will end, the star whale will be released, and our ship will disintegrate. I hope I keep the strength to make the right decision. I voted for this. Why would I do that? Because you knew if we stayed here, I'd be faced with an impossible choice. Humanity or the alien. You took it upon yourself to save me from that. That was wrong. You don't ever decide what I need to know. I don't even remember doing it. You did it, that's what counts. I'm... I'm sorry. Oh, I don't care. When I'm done here, you're going home. Why? Because I made a mistake. One mistake. I don't even remember doing it. Doctor! Yeah, I know. You're only human. What are you doing? The worst thing I'll ever do. I'm going to pass a massive electrical charge through the Starwell's brain. Should knock out all its high functions, leave it vegetable. The ship will still fly, but the whale won't feel it. That'll be like killing it. Look, three options. One, I let the Starwell continue in unendurable agony for hundreds more years. Two, I kill everyone on this ship. Three, I murder a beautiful, innocent creature as painlessly as I can. And then I, I find a new name, because I won't be the doctor anymore. There must be something we can do some other way. Nobody talk to nobody. No man has anything to say to me today! For those who listen to this clip and are horrified at this scenario, without wishing to soften the power and impact of the writing and performances, we can at least assure you that they don't go for any of the Doctor's three options. We won't say more than that, as this already spoiled enough of a future episode of Matt Smith's run as the Doctor. But we needed to provide the whole context in order to explain the Doctor's reaction in this case as well as highlight that the show is not above critiquing the British state or humanity as a whole. But to get back to my original point, the Doctor is alien, yes. But he is also as ineffably human as the rest of us, capable of mistakes and anger and passion and despair and hope. He is large and contains multitudes. And so do we. This is what I wanted, is to be able to hear this, because, like, Doctor Who is such a... I think it was one of the formative series for me in mm. many ways. But, like, oh, it absolutely has these elements where it's just coming at it at such a angle. And I think that these episodes, the fact that it just... It has these successes and it also has these drawbacks, which and I feel like I'm just sort of being too like middle of the road on all of this. But uh, yeah, I'm probably <laughs> in the same boat as you. So, <laughs> but no, I just want to make sure that like Alejandro doesn't feel like for criticizing this. It's like, oh well, this episode is perfect. How dare you, Alejandro? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I have I'm perfectly willing to accept criticism to of Doctor Who because. <laughs> I mean, the only case I will not accept a, a Doctor Who criticism is when Jodie Whittaker was the incumbent Doctor and all these sexist assholes were like, oh, my Doctor, she's a woman. And I'm like, fuck you. That's part of the reason why I wanted you to put together some Chris Chibnall episodes yeah. for me. And, and because... I'm still working. On, I'm still working on that. I mean, I've got mm -hmm. some Peter. I've got the Peter Capaldi episodes picked. Mm -hmm. I just need to pick some moments where Jodie really shines. So mm -hmm. as well as some of my favorite big finish stories that you could listen to on the sly mm. so i've heard um, that the recent chris chibnall stuff is like doctor who is apparently at a low point and that's might be part of the reason why for the 60th anniversary they actually brought tenant back to play a different version of the doctor and yeah. bring in some of that old I mean, stuff I'd, I'd like to think that one of the re key reasons they brought tenant back aside from that is also the fact that We've also got another doctor coming in, you know, Shuti Gatwa, who's mm -hmm. going to be the first doctor being played by a person of color. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge deal. Um, and he's fantastic. Uh, he's, he's very I, good I, I've, from what I've seen of him and some other stuff, he's yeah, mm -hmm. he's he's great. I'm looking forward to seeing what he brings to the character. Like, I think 
Russell kind of through like seeing what Stephen Moffat had done, like expanding on stuff on stuff that he had done, you know, and in, in his era of the show, wanted to kind of pay, uh, finish off this one plot point that he with Don Noble, like that he just kind of just mm. discarded back in season four and or series four rather. And kind of just bring it back and kind of give it a more, I guess, not necessarily definitively, but a more satisfying conclusion than, you know, he had Tennant come in just to kind of help carry the show into the 60th anniversary so that, you know, Chuti wouldn't have to be burdened with that. And mm. and uh, I, I like to think that Russell was uh, doing that as a favor to Chuti so he could just so he could, you know, help with the transition. Yeah. But, Everything Kevin says makes sense. But unfortunately, it also makes me think of the recent issues Marvel has been having, and that they also want to go back to when their IP was beloved by bringing back the old cast. I'm not saying these situations are entirely alike, but it is noteworthy. I do want to bring up uh, a response to some points that were made earlier. I've never had that big of an issue with the tonal shifts of Doctor Who, because to a certain extent, it's always had a significant amount of horror spice and a significant amount of comedy spice. Just sort of mix the two together, and these two episodes are definitely emblematic of that. Regardless of, like, serious things going on all the time, there's always that sort of expression that Chris Eccleston in particular has on his face that can spread into the goofy smile that suggests that no matter how serious things are, he's still having fun with whatever's going on there. Yeah. I was reading a review of this one uh, audio story that Big Finish put out with the the Ninth Doctor for the 60th. And it's written by someone who you might be familiar with, a guy by the name of Alistair Stewart, who was on School of Movies a few times. Yes. He wrote this about the Ninth Doctor, and it very much sums up how I feel about him, especially in this two-parter. Nine is a whirling uh, hurricane of determination, barely contained rage and an abject compassion, and that mercuriality is on display here throughout. Mm. Mm. And that very much sums up how I feel about not just the Ninth Doctor, but especially the Ninth Doctor in this two-parter. Yeah, that's part of the... Like, certain things might not necessarily land for you if you're watching these two episodes in isolation, because some of the developments that Alejandro brought up and that other people brought up, you understand them a little bit better. If you get that, as you brought up earlier, Kevin, that this is the doctor with PTSD who has seen his entire race die and all of the events of the war between the Time Lords and the Daleks. And if he yeah. if he's working so hard to keep Rose's attention, it sort of dovetails back with the whole thing about why he wanted her to join him in the first place is because he's fucking lonely and he wants to be able to see the world through eyes of awe again with Billy Piper's Rose as his proxy. And the idea that some... Han Solo type is coming out of the woodwork and potentially going to swoop away with her just because he's charming and sexy and everything like that. That may like hit at the doctor's. No, no, no. I have to keep Rose around. She's my lifeline to like the person I used to be or whatever. It it, it gives him a sense of normality, basically. Mm -hmm. I think that what I like about this element of the story isn't necessarily the idea of the Doctor and Jack butting heads as, like, you know... Sonic devices, cough, cough. Exactly. It's more that when they're stuck waiting and the Doctor is trying to work on the bars and he asks Rose, like, why are you so quick to trust him? And it's because at that point, Jack is a self-admitted con man. Mm, And... mm. She says, I trust him because he's like you, except we're dating and dancing. What? You just assume, Mum. What? You just assume I don't dance. What? Are you telling me you do dance? 900 years old, me. I've been around a bit. I think you can assume at some point I've danced. You? Problem? Doesn't the universe implode or something if you dance? Well, I've got the moves, but I wouldn't want to boast. And in this, dancing is code for fucking, like, I <laughs> guess. Like, well, because yep, yep. later, uh, like, when... Even often even about, admitted as such in an interview. And then, like, the Doctor just sort of wordlessly is just sort of 
I'm not even sure how to describe it, but just sort of indignant or just sort of like dismissive where it's just like you just assume that I don't dance and <laughs> like I, I like and, to think that's a meta commentary on the fact that, that back in the classic run of the series there there was this stipulation that no kissing and no hugging from mm, the doctor and companion. No hanky panky no, in the TARDIS exactly. was the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially between a male doctor and the female companions. Mm-hmm. Oh but like I absolutely shipped the second doctor with Jamie. Like, you know, that's I would too. Yeah. Especially <laughs> especially that moment in Tomb of the Cybermen where he, they grab each other's hand and they're like, oh, Look, Jamie Which was apparently an ad lib on Let's Troughton just be clear Pines about Spoon. that. <laughs> yeah. That was a sort of a new statement, which is sort of like obviously it's like a bit of a strange thing to sort of be like, oh yeah, but this is a doctor who dances. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It was refreshing. It yep. genuinely was, even though like, you know, there was 11 year old me and I was just like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> They can't come out and say it. What are you hugging there? Oh, this is, that... is a whale. It's a whale. It's a very cute plush whale. This is whale. my Ikea oh, whale. God. I don't have oh. an Ikea shark. I have an Ikea whale. <laughs> this is a little off topic, but that reminds me of my first time going to my local Comic-Con many years ago in 2013, uh, during the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, where I also met Colin Baker, really nice guy. Oh, goodness. And mm-hmm. uh, I ran into this Loki cosplayer, Loki Ooh. from Marvel, and he was holding a plushie of... Uh, an aquatic animal, and it was wielding the little spear thing that Loki uses in the Avengers from Loki, the Loki action figure. Uh, and I'm like, he said in the best Tom Hiddleston impression I'd ever heard, saying, yes, I'm Loki of Asgard, and I'm burdened with this glorious porpoise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's very good. Uh, but, speaking uh, of Eccleston, I actually met him last year at my local Comic-Con, and he was so delightful. As I said before we started recording, he signed my Series 1 Blu-ray. Although, albeit with the stipulation that he didn't want to see it on eBay. Yes. And I no. said to him, yeah, I have like no intention of selling sell it, sir. That. I told I him, mean, I have no intention of selling it, sir. And he just was, and he said, good man. Just <laughs> in the same inflection that he did to Captain Jack in this episode. And I'm just, fantastic. And I, I, I almost teared up hearing that in person. Yeah. But it's, he was so nice. Even though I was dressed as his successor, I was he was so nice. And that's what I sort of want to kind of draw our attention to as we're Mm. definitely running up against the clock here is that this is an episode that is kind of taking us to darker territory than Mm. a lot of the season one episodes. The fact that it tackles the idea of a teen pregnancy. And I think that in its final form, it's egregious. I'm not going to argue whether it's something that should or shouldn't be. It's there. But the transformation of the creatures and for all of that, for the fact that it's in World War II and so much of it is about feeling helpless and lost. Like these aren't just zombies, they are zombies who are calling for their mother Mm -hmm. in a time when you see Nancy express this sentiment of like, you're mad. And uh, this thing that I don't think I've seen in other time travel stories where it's like, for her, it's like, it's not the idea of time travel that she's struggling to grasp. It's just, you're from the future. I don't believe you. How mm. do we have a future? This is my reality. How can, yeah. how can you be from somewhere beyond that? And like the entire episode is all about that. And Richard Wilson's character is this character who has lost everything. And he has this line, which is, Before this war began, I was a father and a grandfather. No, I'm neither, but I'm still a doctor. And the doctor doesn't refute him either. He's like, yeah, I know the feeling because the doctor was a grandfather himself. Exactly. Right. And so that is someone who has lost everything but maintains this sliver of not even necessarily hope, just duty, which speaks to the post-war PTSD of the Ninth Doctor. And everything about this episode is just this like feeling of unrelenting helplessness in a time of despair and then it culminates in a moment of absolute hope this light i think to me is the defining christopher eccleston moment he is someone who has struggled so much he has seen moments where entire civilizations are gone he has let the quote-unquote last human die saying everything's time comes and here when he sees a chance 
he uses it and says, everybody lives, Rose. Just this once. Everybody lives! Blow the mic there. Yep. (laughs) You're you're right that that is one of the quintessential Ninth Doctor moments. I would say that it butts right up against the two-part finale for this season. Which I won't spoil, because we've already pretty thoroughly spoiled these episodes at least. But if our discussion makes you curious enough to watch Doctor Who, I'd want you to have plenty of other surprises along the way. No, that's off topic. Maybe we'll discuss it more when we discuss the Doctor. And it's this delightful thing, and just the sort of... Don't think about the implication of... Are you beaming away like your father Christmas? Who says I'm not Red Bicycle when you were 12? What? I actually had a bit of have a bit of trivia regarding that line. That was yeah. actually a holdover from a, a subplot that was going to be in season one, a, in addition to the bad wolf thing that Russell T. Davies kind of nixed late in production involving Jack discovering in a later episode that the Doctor had basically been manipulating Rose's timeline to become the perfect companion. That's weird. No. Yeah, don't. and say what you will about Russell T. Davies, especially considering like in his first era where he's very much trying to ape Joss Whedon. At mm. least he recognized when something was problematic like that, he nixed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Joss that... Whedon would probably have gone with it anyway. Mm. Well, let's, yeah. be, let's be franker. Stephen Moffat would have left it in. That joke is like one of those things where it's like it makes you chuckle in the moment. It's like, <laughs> and then you just sort of because yeah. this is an audio medium, you just go. Wait, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> Something wrong here. Fridge logic can be a real danger when it comes to anything that Stephen Roffat writes in general. We think that's very clever in the moment, and then you go, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. But as far as Stephen Moffat episodes go, I would agree this is probably one of his most solid ones. Probably maybe due to the fact that, you know, like this is his first time on the boat and he's figuring things out and he he's not in charge yet. So somebody else is holding the reins. But honestly, my only real big problem with uh, his writing, aside from the other stuff that got brought up along the way, which we don't, you know, was that a Davies inclusion? Was that a Moffat inclusion? Whatever. What I heard, Davies didn't really do much to polish up Russell Moffat's scripts. Hmm. I mean, he did suggest ideas here and there, but by and large, the Moffat episodes you see during Russell T. Davies' era are very much Moffat's voice because uh, Davies was very impressed with how polished it was. The Moffat episodes basically became a highlight for fans during mm. Davies' first era of the show for that reason, because it's so just different from what Davies usually does. You know, and we go, like, it was like oh, a treat Ma- for the audience. Oh, Moffat is so good. Can you imagine if it was all Moffat, the monkey's poor curls? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I like what he did for yeah. Matt Smith and Pink Capaldi's eras by and large, I, but I do admit I, there are some little I, niggles here and there. I, I definitely don't want to, like, you know, yeah. go too hard on it. He mm-hmm. yeah. did a lot for the show, and I think that, like, it got as big as it did because like i mean so much of the international like appeal and memes came with stuff that happened with matt smith and you know fish fingers and custard and the madman in the box box theme just like uh all the music of uh it's james mangold right uh who does the music for doctor who no murray gold Murray, Murray Gold. Gold did the music for the for seasons one through ten, and then a different guy named Sagan something did uh, I can't remember something African sounding. Sorry, I'm gonna I sound really racist now. I'm sorry, but some guy named Sega did the music for Jodie Whittaker's era, and now apparently Murray Gold's back at least for the 60th anniversary mm. specials. Mm. I don't know if he's gonna continue on. He's mostly doing it as a favor for Russell because they work together a lot. Uh, but I don't know if he's still gonna continue on with it for Shooty's era or not. And to round us off with this, like, as you say, the I think Moffat works best as an episode writer rather than a series writer. Sure, yeah. And I think that uh, this is probably, for as much as there are arcs that you see across the first season, this is a really solid story, I maintain. And I think it's yeah. worth revisiting if you vaguely remember it and are curious about it. Or it's just like, hey, what's a good Ninth Doctor storyline? I think this one is. Yeah. The one thing that hits a little weird in places is that because they're technically outsiders coming into a world that they don't know what's going on, they need someone to explain the idiosyncrasies of not just the time that they're in, 
but also whatever it is they're facing. And while Dr. Constantine works for part of that, the other part of that is, of course, Nancy, who is shockingly genre-savvy. Mm. But it, there's at least one point where that doesn't work as well, where the, the cleverness conflicts with the vibes, and that's specifically the part of The Doctor Dances, where she's trying to explain to the kids, you know, you need to look, I not, may not be around, you need to be able to figure these things out for yourself, and then suddenly points out that the kid is no longer typing at the, at the typewriter and is in fact sitting down. Like, how did the kid that was typing not realize that the typewriter was still typing after he sat down? I think because, like, the person who was the beacon of support is talking about leaving mm. and you're thinking, like, because you, the audience, don't necessarily, like, clue into it until she points your attention to it because it's a magic trick you know while your yeah. attention was over here the audio was over there like just kind of well well that, you pay type, that, that typewriter me, scene you pay was attention. a last minute addition to the episode yeah. because they needed oh. to kind of beef up the runtime a bit because uh there was some stuff that was cut from the the finale of the episode for technical reasons and Moffat just needed a uh, he needed to write something that didn't include the leads, but and only two characters that could talk and all that and just huh. kind of props that could be used were limited. So, although Moffat originally wanted to use a record player, but was informed that it wasn't feasible. So, hmm. so the typewriter was in there, and I think the typewriter was actually a little more effective, especially since you see it's typing, "Mummy, mummy." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All no. work and no play, like makes Jamie a dull boy. Yeah, yeah. That yep. is one of the things that he uses Very effectively. Shiny. And, but he does it multiple times within these two episodes, is turning what we essentially relate as being a background noise into something that's actually very scary. Like, mm, again, yeah. the reveal in the in the recording the booth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Moffat has this real knack of making, just like do, like what Doctor Who has always done a lot really well, is make take something ordinary, make it terrifying. And also ah, well, another... The Stephen King approach. Bit, yeah. <laughs> And another thing I really appreciate about his writing, too, is that he takes like big, fantastical sci-fi gobbledygook and makes it sound downright pedestrian. Mm. And I'm not mm. saying that to be insulting. I think that's really cool because Moffat, as a sci-fi writer, very much abhors technobabble. Whenever there's a big technobabbly explanation for it or something like that, he will either send it up completely or just completely eschew it altogether. Like in this next episode after this one, which was Girl in the Fireplace, there's this moment where where Rose asks him, like, what's this thing? And the doctor gives this like weird techno babbling explanation. And then Rose is like, wow, so what's that then? And the doctor <laughs> just simply replies, I don't know, I just made that up. I just didn't want to say magic door. <laughs> so, you know, that's basically, uh, that was basically Moffat's ethos is to just avoid the techno babble altogether. Make it I don't know. That's that, that's a little bit too cute by halves. Again, I feel like Stephen Moffat true, true, tries but it works. To, Kevin, I me. feel like he tries to be clever, and the fact that he just sometimes is clever is the only reason anyone puts up with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how he wrote Sherlock Holmes. So yeah. oh, don't even get yeah. a start on Sherlock Holmes, man. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I don't have any investment in Doctor Who. People have tried to get me into Doctor Who. Fair enough. It, it hasn't worked. I, I assume there's good Doctor Who because people care so much, like yourself. It's but been around for 60 years for a reason. I but. just can't care. Um, there's too much yeah. of it, for starters. Like, yeah. okay. I, no. I started with, uh, during Tenant's second season, so how do you think I feel? <laughs> I didn't even get into the Big Finish audios till after Matt Smith's don't. first season. And they've been <laughs> making the audios since 1999. <laughs> I said don't. don't. You have to understand. One Piece is really good. Oh, Christ, here we go. Uh, hey, hey, I'm the anime expert here. I stopped reading One Piece. <laughs> I'm saying something. Yeah. I'm more a casual anime fan, so I'd like to kind of shorter anime right. series, like Full Metal Alchemist, probably. I, look, lead actor outstanding. Up, I gotta go call my boyfriend. Uh, yes, I am going to say that we should uh, get yep. to the wrap-up, because, Greg, you had some notes about what connects all of this. I mean, we've covered most of them in just terms of, like, there isn't a whole lot of diversity on show. There was far more diversity when we did our 10 horror movies that I haven't seen. So in the future, obviously, I'd like to remix. Like, 
this wasn't necessarily intended. Again, at least one of these things is one I had never seen before, but I always want to do a cross-section going forward that like highlights a lot of different um, outside forces, much like we're a team bringing in our own variants and expertise and everything like that. I also wanted to add that there was only one callback that I can think of to these particular episodes, which was a later... I don't remember when it was exactly, but like someone was like giving an exposition jump to uh, David Tennant's doctor. And for some reason, he had on a gas mask and asked the expositioner, are you my mummy? If you could concentrate. <laughs> but yeah. But as far as the rest of it is concerned. Apparently that was an ad lib on uh, David Tennant's part. But <laughs> OK, well, that makes perfect sense then. Because the fact they kept it is even better. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that in addition to everything else, the reason why David Tennant made such a great doctor is because he's such an enormous Doctor Who fanboy. He wanted but... to be the doctor since he was five. <laughs> oh, God. In general, I think this was a really great experiment. I thought I think we got a lot of quality, fun, and, and content out of this. But it's something that I feel I'd like to talk about in the future in general, is that because of the way I watch these things in order, in terms of, like, old, newer, newest... Regardless of how good a piece of media is, whether it's liked by audiences at the time or if it's liked in hindsight, like it's a cult classic, it occurs to me that the older stuff can always be influential on the newer stuff, regardless of how good. Like there, there may be like but one good thing that came out of a crappy, schlocky movie that someone's like, I can do that better and incorporate that into future media. That's probably one of the big hallmarks of stuff that Alex has put out to bring it back to our normal content. I, I really enjoyed this as an experiment in general, and that makes me feel good about us going off the beaten track and trying stuff that we haven't done before. As always, uh, these side projects expose me to things that I was unfamiliar with, and that's what I always enjoy about media is that it is a perpetual education. So thank you both for providing that. Kevin, yes. we're as soon as you come up with your list, and as soon as I watch everything on your list, we'll set up something for a future show. Provided my work schedule doesn't get in the way of that. <laughs> well, again, we'll, we'll work around that. There's this, this is the side project. Toby and I will continue doing our thing, which well is should. It's easier mm. to schedule two people, especially now that uh, Toby has a little less stressful stuff going on at his plate. With, because uh, he's a doctor now. Yes, he's an Did actual doctor. He has Who? a PhD. Who? He's fucking cool like that. <laughs> All right, Alejandro, the check is in the mail. Um, <laughs> Take two uh, of these and call him in the morning. <laughs> And Alejandra, thank you so much for coming on for this. This was a delight, as always. I know I make my jokes, and this is not a letter that I've been contractually forced to read out at the end of this session. But yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely been fun. Um, I've, look, whatever you guys want me to come in and talk about, I'm always ready to talk about movies. I still need to go back and do a full rewatch of the 200 movies that you watched the previous year. God. So it's entirely possible that we'll mine that for future content because just bringing in three things that uh, two or one or more of us hasn't watched and discussing it, that feels like a really good format so far. So, mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we've passed the two-hour mark. I think that's enough talking about these really ridiculous films. Good evening, everybody. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this ridiculousness once more. I'm a doctor. Bye. <laughs> You're on the fourth dimension, folks. <laughs> and that's the end of Spooktacular 2023. In the meantime, more Castle of the Moon content coming. A White Scars team up with Alejandra as we discuss her experience with a very out-of-order reading of all 14 New Century books. And here's the big one. A show on the new Insomniac mega-hit video game, Spider-Man 2. Some beyond outtakes after the outro, but to close us out, continuing the theme from last time, a big hit song from an emo alternative band that I somehow managed not to hear at all till a couple of years ago. Some nice 
dark lyrics to go with October, even though this episode didn't come out till mid-November. Until next time, I'll leave you a phantom to lead you in the summer to join the Black Parade. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. He said, son, when you grow up, would you be the savior of the broken, the beaten and the damned? He said, will you defeat them, you demons and all the non-believers, the plans that they have made? Because one day I'll leave you a phantom to lead you in the summer. To join the Black Parade
uh, you know, as mentioned previously, we talked for over three hours on ten movies. Mm. We should probably talk less overall on three, but we'll have to that see. That should where it goes. feels like it's a rather strained word. <laughs> <laughs> Look, every time I assume it's not going to take much time at all. I've always ended up proving myself wrong because I forget how easy it is for us to natter on. Natter. Natter, yes. Lots of nattering. Mm-hmm. I'm going to witter on a bit. <laughs> what, what was it? I, I got that from... I got that from Good Omens, I think. What The Nattering Sisters, that collection of evil nuns or something like that? Yeah, that feels like a Terry Pratchett <laughs> word for sure. There it is. Mm-hmm. Almost forgot the pop shield. So now we just have to worry about you, crackle. You and never. Snap. You should always. If there's anything I know, is that you should never go into a situation without your pop shield. What happens? What happens if you spill your pop? I mean, then I well, ruined just... my perfectly new dress. It's yeah, so it's... soft. I love it so much. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you love this dress so much, and I'm glad that it has pockets because I know how difficult that can be to get. All right, so how are we starting this sucker off? Okay, um, so I'll do... Oh, I guess and... we'll let, we'll let Greg talk, is what I, I was meant to say. Instead, I interrupted Greg and didn't <laughs> let him talk. As is tradition. So, Greg. Uh, I was going to say, we will Would you do... like to talk now, Greg? <laughs> Toby! Bad Toby! No, 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 you don't understand, Alejandra. This is how it normally is. You, you haven't seen, I've edited some of this stuff out, some of it I've put into outtakes. Toby is being himself here, so. Yes, I am. Anytime Greg steps away, I mean, you've probably heard this in outtakes repeatedly if you listen to the show, but anytime Greg steps away from microphone, I will just leave a series of things for him to discover when he comes back to the edit. And it will usually be whatever nonsense comes to the forefront of my mind in that time. A lot of the time, it's absolute garbage. Sometimes it's gold. It's, it's hidden gems other that times I have I'll to share t- with everyone else. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes I'll just sing a little song. <laughs> you got to sing a little song sometimes. Mm-hmm. Give a little whistle. I haven't seen, to date, many movies or media that show off the specifics of a modern eastern metropolitan. Wow, I did it twice. Metropolitan. That's not even a fucking word. I um, I was having a delightful moment just now, looking at the original text uh, stuff that... And the comments you said on the original text chain of that oh-so-innocuous day when we just decided, hey, that lady who does the uh, purple tiger voice, she's pretty cool. Wouldn't it be nice for us to talk with um, Greg? Oh, Greg, I thought that went well. Greg, did you have a good time with that podcast? Did you? Sorry, I'm too busy uh, talking with Maureen some more. Oops, she uh, decided to come over. Oops, I married her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoops, whoopsie. <laughs> uh, I like that tiger going to put a ring on it. <laughs> I was going to bring in... Uh, I was going to bring in Maureen with later... Re- wow, okay, I cannot talk. Excellent, you can tell that put I'm... Put it in the outtakes. Put it in the outtake. We're in outtake zone now. Nothing matters because you've listened to the whole podcast, so you don't. It doesn't matter. You listen to me. I'm spouting gibberish, but you listen to the entire show anyway. So who's the fool? The fool who speaks the foolishness, or the fool who follows him? That's what the great science fiction character Spock said. Greg Morin, what the fuck am I talking about? I don't know. I know. I also know the quote that you're talking about, but that was actually not Spock. I'm relatively <laughs> sure it was Alec Guinness as Obi Wan. Right, that was the joke. No. Oh. 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 Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, y'all are so cute. Thank you. <laughs> You, I would like uh, this man right here with the <laughs> so, shiny head and the cute face and the nice booty. So, 
Um, <laughs> is, I, right, now, now I get to figure out how much of that I actually keep in the edit. Um, <laughs> all of it, you coward. <laughs> I mean, do you want people to know you have a nice booty? I would advertise it to the world. <laughs> but here's the thing, Greg. You don't need to say... Like, some things just communicate across, even in audio. <laughs> we know you got a nice booty. Excellent. I got my wife on the line. I've got my work partner flirting at me. This is a great recording already. Um, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Same throat bullshit. High five. <laughs> yeah, that's throat bullshit buddies. Yeah, years. yeah. Throat bullshit buddies is a good name for a podcast, but I don't know that it would catch on. No. no. <laughs> Do you want to hear some of our throat bullshit? Tuesdays with phlegm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, Fridays with phlegm. Oh. That sounds better. Phlegm FM. That sounds like the worst. Uh, ASMR <laughs> show ever. Ew. Hey, Ew. Like, <laughs> we can't promise that it will be soothing, but we can promise authenticity. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, to get back on track, this is going to be fascinating to edit because I'm going to have to take so much stuff out. Um, That's for future Greg to figure out. Keep you off the streets and out of trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we know how you've been going to the streets and feeding various um, Yakuza goons their teeth. That's a reference that nobody's going to get. <laughs> Bringing it back again. So what we have here is a very 80s, very British... Very dream logic collection of short tales about vampires adapted by Neil Jordan, the guy who did Interview with the Vampire. Short stories about vampires? God bless it.